It's called the sunshine vitamin, vitamin D. Given we're coming to the end of winter here in the southern hemisphere, our vitamin D stores should be at their lowest point of the year. But for those up in the northern hemisphere at the end of the summer, levels will soon start to fall as you head towards winter. So what exactly is this nutrient that we can get without eating any food? Why is it so important to run as cyclists and triathletes? How much vitamin D is enough? When should you get tested? And when, how much, and what type of supplements should you take to prevent or correct a vitamin D deficiency? Today, we're speaking to researcher Dr. Dan Owens from Liverpool John Moores University in the UK, whose research is aiming to answer these and more questions about vitamin D for athletes. We'll also discuss the different types of vitamin D in food, supplements, and the body, ethnic differences and their relevance to vitamin D testing, and how much sun exposure is enough to meet your vitamin D needs. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each episode, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. Sort of stuff that you're talking about out on your run or ride in the coffee shop afterwards or jumping online to try and find answers for. So we'll take that question and break it down, inviting a guest expert or an athlete or coach to add their unique perspective as well. Today, it is episode 63, Should I Be Taking Vitamin D Supplements? with our special guest, Dr. Dan Owens. But before we get to Dan, how are you going this week, Steph? Uh, Al, I'm I'm thinking it's Friday already, so does that (laughs) tell you how I'm going? So for the listeners, this recording is happening on a Tuesday. <laughs> um, so I'm hanging in there, um, hanging in there. Um, yeah, no, I, I am going well. Uh, yeah, can't really. <laughs> um, we're in week six for university. Uh, Halfway if that point of the semester. Anything to anyone. And mm. um, yes, and... Uh, that's busy. about it, really. Yeah, just busy. Yep, yep, as mm. you are. So that's really all that's happening for me. And then weekends are kind of looking at houses and um, having fun with that. Yeah, what about you? What's going on with you? Uh, similar, a lot of work, bits and pieces. We had our first participant complete the hydration study that we've talked about over the last few weeks and a second participant who started the first trial of that and got a few more that'll be coming through in the next few weeks so it's exciting we're getting a few people coming through but again if there is anyone in melbourne that would be interested you can see the details for that study on our social media channels particularly on instagram at the long munch all the details are up there a couple of posts back so if you have a look there you'll find the details of what the study's about and how to get in contact as well but it's a a running study uh, running for about two two and a half hours in each trial and looking at what you do hydration wise beforehand and how that impacts on how you run the next day mm, yep and it's running in remind me 30 or 35 degrees 30 30 that yeah cool. not that bad but yeah you know it's good for people if they're wanting to know how they'll cope in in the heat and how their body responds they can get some really good data from that so yep absolutely yeah. yep If you do have any questions that you would like answered on the podcast, 
you can find us on social media at the Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook, and um, now what do we call it? Twitter still? Yeah, well, I think everyone still calls it Twitter, even though it's called X. X, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, maybe, you know, I should get with it and, and call it X. But, yeah, we would love some some more questions from, from the lis- listeners. So please shoot them to us. We'd love them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually next week's topic is a, a listener question, so we'll mention that at the end of the podcast in terms of what's coming up next week. Uh, but the question this week was actually a question from myself, Steph. So <laughs> obviously our topic this week is should I be taking vitamin D supplements? And this came about because I was doing some work for Triathlon Australia uh, and their Melbourne-based athletes that train with Daniel Stefano, who we've had on the podcast before, the coach here in Melbourne. And we were looking at putting together a bit of a protocol around, you know, what blood tests should people get at different times of the year, thinking about, you know, adequacy of, of different nutrients and things and, and sort of thinking about vitamin D. And, and the question we had was really around the testing side of it. So I actually reached out to our guest today, Dr. Dan Owens, because he's done probably the majority of, of recent research in vitamin D for athletes to try and get some answers to that. And when he sort of got back to me, so I thought, oh, this is really good information. Let's put this into a podcast so we can share this information with everyone else as well. So Dan is a lecturer and researcher in cellular and molecular sport and exercise science at Liverpool John Moores University in the UK. And we'll ask him about that title in this mm-hmm. interview. It's a bit of a long one. Uh, his PhD research, though, looked at the role of vitamin D in skeletal muscle function and regeneration specifically. So his whole PhD was around this topic of vitamin D, but for athletes specifically, and particularly around muscle function. So we'll talk to him a little bit about that as we go through. But he's continuing to research in this area. His PhD was a a few years ago now, but he's also working on some cool technology with the aim of helping people understand whether they've had enough sun exposure to get enough vitamin D from that sun exposure to meet their needs as well. So he'll briefly touch on that in this interview as well, but some really cool stuff that's coming down the pipeline from him and the team at Liverpool John Moores around this area. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this one and it's one that's very relevant for for our listeners. So yeah, let's get stuck into it. Yeah, let's do it. Dan Owens, welcome to the Long Much. How are things there in the UK? Yeah, very well. Thank you. And, and thanks to you guys for uh, having me on. No, no, pleasure to have you here. Now, this podcast, kind of the genesis for it was about 12 months ago now when we had a bit of a, an online discussion around vitamin D testing. I was doing some work with Triathlon Australia at the time and trying to work out, I guess, the ideal times of the year to routinely screen athletes around vitamin D and then had a bit of back and forth discussion. I thought, oh, this would be great to, to sort of put together as a podcast and make it available to everyone else. So here we are. But you're a lecturer and researcher in cellular cellular and molecular sport and exercise science. That's a long, <laughs> long title at Liverpool John Moores University in the UK. And part of that work included your PhD research, which was around vitamin D, but it was around vitamin D particularly and skeletal muscle function. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk a little bit about that later as well, because I think people don't necessarily associate vitamin D with muscle function. They think more about bones and things like that. But I guess to start off with, how did you find yourself working in the area of vitamin D in the first place? Yeah, so you're totally right. Firstly, my my title is not one I picked. <laughs> so <laughs> That's a bizarre title, but... Yeah, with vitamin D, um, it was really Graham Close, um, who was my project supervisor for my undergraduate degree at John Moores, who 
who introduced me to the area. Um, I'd kind of expressed that I wanted to stay in research and, and go down a sort of research career. And at the time, he'd been working with James Morton on characterizing the, vi the vitamin D status of, of athletes. And they'd found that a lot of athletes in the winter were becoming deficient. So how could they, you know, try, try and combat that? And from my perspective, it was, well, what's the functional consequence of that for the athlete? Yeah. So we, we developed a, a project idea to try and, to try and investigate vitamin D in the context of muscle, obviously muscle being very important to the majority of athletes. And then it sort of went from there. I got offered a, a PhD after, after a year or so of doing a bit of sort of lab assistant type work and then yeah went and did a, a, a phd on it and that just sort of went on from there really it's been a theme since for me in, in my research mm. yeah we we're talking off air before it's something that's continuing now as well you're still still working in this area yeah absolutely so we've got a number of projects ongoing ranging really from sort of basic biology right through to applied practical application with athletes so a lot of ongoing stuff and hopefully some things we can we can publish and talk about in in the next year or so yeah yeah awesome okay and do you have a particular sort of sporting background or interest yourself yeah well you know as you said before we started you get a lot of triathletes listening um tri triathlon is is my sport really uh, i participate yeah, cool. in it from sprint distance up to 70.3 so i did um the 70.3 here in, in Swansea uh, a few weeks ago. I'm also a qualified triathlon coach as well. So I do coach at my local local club. So I really enjoy triathlon and cycling, but I've also been involved working in pro sport for a number of years as well, supporting athletes in team sports, but also now more one-on-one -on -one providing nutrition and, and physiological support. So yeah, I've got a real deep interest in, in sport. It's a, it's a passion for me and yeah, I'm going to try and string it out as long as I can be in a a recreational athlete myself yeah 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 fair enough all right well before we get into the the ins and outs of vitamin d testing and and supplementation i guess maybe a good place to start is to take a step back and actually explain for listeners what vitamin d is because i think everyone's probably heard of vitamin d before but they don't necessarily know what it is what it does why it's important those sort of things can you just give us a brief summary of of that from your perspective yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great place to start. So, so vitamin D is it's a what we would call a, a steroid-like hormone. Really, it's it's not really a vitamin in that sense, and so so structurally, it's very different to the other vitamins. But what it does have in common is that it's something that we need to get from somewhere else. The body can't make it on its own, so we have some requirement to get it from somewhere else, and we can we can discuss that in a bit more detail down the line but really we get most of our vitamin d from exposure to sunlight so we're going to produce some of it in the skin and then it's going to have its actions in the body there are some sources we can get from from food as well but really the the key role for vitamin d in our body is to regulate our calcium absorption that's what we fundamentally recognize as the main function of vitamin d so it allows us to get all the calcium we need from the foods that we eat and regulate the amount of calcium in the body. And as a result, it, it then prevents diseases associated with not enough calcium, and, and they mostly relate to bone. So brittle bone diseases like rickets, osteomalacia in adults, and perhaps osteoporosis in, in older age as well. Mm -hmm. But it does have a number of other effects as well. I think we can get into to a bit more detail around that. And we, we know now that it's not just important for cal regulating calcium. It can 
interact with a, a lot of different tissues, including our muscles, our, our immune system, our brain. So it has quite distinct and far-reaching effects depending on which tissue it's interacting with. And I think that makes it quite distinct from, from a lot of other vitamins. Mm, yeah. And I guess, you know, judging from that description, what you're talking about, I mean, my understanding with vitamin D is it was kind of originally kind of considered a vitamin because it was kind of discovered in food possibly before the the effect of sunlight and producing vitamin d was discovered and so that it was assumed that we got it all from food and therefore it mm-hmm. got classified as a vitamin but my guess is probably if we discovered it today and we knew about the sunlight thing it probably never would have been called a vitamin in the first place yeah i i agree with that yeah absolutely and and you hit the nail on the head it would you know it was it was discovered in cod liver oil because cod mm. liver oil was found to to prevent rickets. So when there was a, a rickets epidemic in the uh, 20th, 20th century, mm. you know, this was this was how it led to its discovery. So it wasn't until later that we started to understand that the majority of the requirement actually is coming from, from the sun. And mm. I think just to come back to an earlier point, once, you know, sort of the the structure of it was characterized. And people thought, well, actually, this is this is actually very much like a hormone. I think that is also something that people would have thought this is very distinct from all the other vitamins. This is something very different. And I find it fascinating that the whole reason I, I find vitamin D fascinating is the fact that we get it from sunlight. It's really the only other nutrient that we get, which is coming is not coming from a food. You know, we're getting it from our environment, which to me is is fascinating why the body developed the system to get a vital nutrient from exposure to sunlight. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, listeners will probably also be aware that there are different types of vitamin D or different forms of vitamin D that and it gets converted into different forms throughout the body as it kind of goes through that process. Can you tell us a little bit about why there are all these different forms and what's the significance of this maybe for someone who's either trying to buy vitamin D supplements or looking at getting vitamin D testing? What what does this matter in terms of the different forms of vitamin D? Yeah, well, you've, you've highlighted it really nicely there, which is that we have forms that the body produces and we have forms that are going to come from the diet. So I'll, I suppose I'll split them into those two categories to make it very clear. The dietary forms and the one that we're going to produce when we're exposed to the sun are vitamin D2 and D3. So vitamin D2 is doesn't contribute very much to our vitamin D status, but it is still found in, in different foods, particularly uh, those that have been exposed to sunlight, like shiitake mushrooms, for example. Mm. Um, vitamin D3 we can get from dietary sources like dairy, from oily fish, and things like that. But as I said before, the majority that we're going to get is, 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 in, is in response to exposure to sunlight. So we're going to produce it in the skin, and then it's going to get pulled into the body. Now, regardless of whether we get vitamin D2 or D3, the biological fate, let's call it, you know, the what's going to happen after that is very similar. It's going to get transported around the body, and it's going to get changed a little bit in order to have biological activity to actually be able to exert some effect in the body so that happens in our liver and our kidneys and it's the form that is produced in the liver which is what we usually measure from a test so the the 25 hydroxy vitamin d that's the one that we're going to 
um, measure with a test. And that is made up of 25 hydroxy vitamin D2 and 25 hydroxy vitamin D3. But it's the total of that which is important. So if you were to get results back from a lab and it reports 25 OHD2 and 25 OHD3 and then total, it's the total that really matters. It doesn't matter so much breaking down these two individual ones. In terms of when buying a supplement then, it's got nothing to do with any of the, the biological metabolites in the body. We're simply interested in whether we would buy D2 or D3. And it's the D3 form that we would always recommend simply because it contributes the most to our vitamin D status. So if D3 intake is low, that's when we'll start to see our 25 OHD drop down. And it's why that also happens when we have low sunlight exposure as well. So very simply, D3, as far as I'm aware, there aren't any sort of modifications that you can buy of it that increase its its activity or anything like this. It's it's a very cheap supplement, straightforward. So yeah, just go for the, the D3 form. Yeah. Okay. And you mentioned that when you do a blood test, it's generally looking at that 25 vitamin D. The final version, my understanding, that the body actually uses to have a biological effect is the next, the final step after that, which is where it goes to the kidney and gets converted into 125 vitamin D. Why is it that we don't measure that or we don't supplement with that kind of active form? We supplement with sort of the precursor that then has to go through all those different steps of conversion. Yeah, it's it's a great question. So the reason we measure it is um, the 25 OHC and not 125, is that 25 is a, is a much better reflection of your exposure to vitamin D, whether that's through sunlight or your intake in the diet. It's got a, a good, what we would call a half-life, so it hangs around in the blood for long enough to us to, to get a good, accurate marker of it. 125 OHD, on the other hand, because it is the biologically active form and it's required for some really important processes that, for example, regulate calcium. In the first instance, if we don't have enough vitamin D coming in through the diet, the kidney will try and compensate by forcing some production of that 125 anyway. And what you might see is over the short term, the the 125 is going to stay elevated but actually your 25's coming down. So you mm-hmm. would probably miss an indication that you're actually deficient. So for the time being, 25 OHD is a, is, a, is a good marker. And we can talk about some variations of that afterwards. But yeah, they're the fundamental reasons why we, we don't measure the, the active form of it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it sounds a bit like, I mean, it's a bit different, but almost like iron where you measure ferritin because it's looking at the iron store, which is the important part rather than the actual amount that's needed in the tissue at the particular time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I guess given that most people get most of the vitamin D from skin exposure to sunlight, this might be a bit of a balancing act between getting enough sunlight to produce vitamin D but not getting so much that we now increase our risk of skin cancer, which I'm sure a lot of the listeners might be worried about. So is this a fine line to tread in terms of how much sunlight is actually recommended to achieve it? Yes, so that's a really important point for, for everyone. You know, the I'm, I'm a, firstly an advocate for safe sunlight exposure, so I'll put that forward. But the key thing to remember in that statement is safe sunlight exposure. And so really it's going to depend geographically where you are, depending on how strong 
the UV um, radiation is at that point in the world. So it will be slightly different. But the fact remains that you don't really need a lot of that exposure to produce a really good amount of vitamin D. So we know that around 15 to 30 minutes of exposure just of the arms and legs per day uh, during the summer months is enough to produce as much vitamin D as we need. And actually, we can carry a lot of that into those first months of autumn and winter. It does a great job of of giving us the, 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 the right amount that we need. And what I find fascinating about the, the sunlight route of producing vitamin D is that it's self-regulating in a way that once we've produced enough of it, we'll start to convert what we don't need to inactive products of it. So it can be quite hard to get vitamin D toxicity from sunlight exposure. So if you get that safe sunlight exposure right, then you know you can really optimize your, your your vitamin D levels. That's not to say to neglect what we get through the diet. You know, it's a, it's a combined effect, I believe. But I, th- I think safe sunlight exposure is a great way during the summer months for us to maximize our vitamin D intake. But the key thing is we we, we really don't want to burn the skin. So you know, if you're starting to get any redness in the skin, it's it's too much, and we know that that increases skin cancer risk. So for me, I'm not advocating that you know, all year round, we should have complete sunscreen. I think we need some sunlight exposure, but clearly we don't want the skin to burn. So if you're going to be out for a long time in the sun, absolutely, we need to either cover the skin or protect it with, you know, with with some sunscreen. So yeah, it is a balancing act, but I don't, you know, 15 to 30 minutes really isn't that long. And the majority of people would be all right with that, unless you have very fair skin and you, you obviously need to be extra careful there. Yeah. And it sounds like it's not necessarily that you have to do it every single day kind of thing, you know, like even in summer, like if you miss a few day, a couple of days in the week, it might be okay. Yeah. You know, having, having little, you know, a day or so off, or if it's cloudy for a couple of days, for example, is, 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 is going to be okay. As I said, the half-life of these metabolites is, is quite long. So you know, the body doesn't know much difference that it's not a regimented thing. Um, but if we have prolonged periods, then yeah, that, that's when it's going to start to lead to, to, to deficiency. So Trouble. we don't need to try and compensate if, you know, we have a, a lack of exposure or, or things like this. And I guess we can talk about the same uh, in the same context with supplements as well. Like if you miss a day or two, there's not really any point just trying to then take a massive dose just to compensate for it. It's better just to get back onto the normal schedule. Yeah. Yep. And so thinking about food sources, can this be enough without skin exposure to the sun, say in winter or someone who spends most of their day indoors? Is it enough to get vitamin D through food? So that there aren't that many sources, as we discussed before, of vitamin D, particularly vitamin D3 in food. So the main ones being fish and, and dairy products and and fortified some fortified foods like cereals and, and some bread as well. And they don't contain a great amount of vitamin D, particularly by comparison to how much the body will produce in response to sunlight. So if you go into the winter months with low vitamin D, so you haven't had much production through the summer or you you know you you haven't had much in the diet through the summer as well 
it's very unlikely that you're going to actually be able to elevate or maintain your vitamin D through the winter just by food alone. And that's actually what we we see with a lot of athletes and particularly in, in more northerly latitudes like where we are in the UK that coming out of the summer months with okay vitamin D levels start to plummet by the time we get to sort of midpoint of winter. And, you know, these are these are athletes who are eating well, a very balanced diet, and it, it's not being compensated for. So it's unlikely during the winter months, especially if you're covering your skin, you're spending time indoors, that you're gonna come that you're gonna maintain your vitamin D levels with with diet alone. But yeah, I will come back to the point that if you do get good exposure through the summer and you go into winter with, you know, let's say optimal vitamin D levels, and we can talk about what that is later then it does give you a nice window of opportunity to sort of maintain them for a lot longer into the winter. And then, you know, it's really only about maybe modest supplementation and trying to seek out really good dietary sources of vitamin D to, to maintain our levels. But that can be quite challenging for a lot of athletes. Yeah. And so let's talk about vitamin D deficiency now. How common is it? And are athletes at higher or lower risk than the general population for vitamin D deficiency? Yeah, so it's it's very common during the winter months globally, really, where we're going to have significant cloud cover. So we're we're not going to get much of that UVB actually reaching the Earth's surface. Um, And secondly, when in the winter, another problem we have is the sun is at a much lower angle in the sky. So it's passing, the, the ultraviolet B radiation is passing through a lot more of ozone and not much of it's actually reaching the Earth's surface. So even on a nice summer day, like sort of a sunny, sorry, day in the winter, we're, we're not really getting much actually reaching our skin. Mm-hmm. In terms of whether athletes are at a higher risk than anyone else, I would say that being an athlete in itself isn't really a risk factor. The risk factors are very similar for everyone in the sense that it depends on what your sunlight exposure behaviors are and what your dietary intake is like. I could say that across Europe, we we know from population studies that around 50% of, let's say five or six of the bigger countries in Europe have a 50% prevalence of vitamin D deficiency during the winter months, which is which is quite high. And when we look at some of the athlete-specific studies, it can really vary. If we've got predominantly indoor athletes, they tend to have much worse vitamin D levels, particularly during the winter. So there have been some study on European basketball players and ballet dancers, for example. They have very low vitamin D, particularly in the winter months. Athletes who spend more time outdoors, maybe team sport athletes, field-based athletes, might be a bit higher. So what that tells me is that it's not really being an athlete, which is the risk. It's do you get much sunlight exposure? Do you have some vitamin D coming in through your diet? And do you supplement at all during the winter? They're going to be the key things that determine whether or not you're going to have a high risk of being deficient. So yeah, that's, that's hopefully that's answered, answered the question in a roundabout way. Mm, yeah. So is vitamin D deficient still see still fairly common in let's say our audience runners cyclists and triathletes given that these are primarily outdoor sports with long durations of of training and racing um the honest answer is that 
There isn't a lot of data for us to say that, that, that we know the answer. So I couldn't refer to any literature and say, yeah, there's a big, this big cohort studies on runners and, and triathletes. But again, it really depends on what they do during those summer months. If they're spending time training and competing outdoors and getting some sunlight exposure on the skin, they're probably going to have like pr- pretty good vitamin D levels, particularly going into the winter. But the winter months are, are clearly still going to be a challenge for them, even if they do spend that time outdoors. You know, there's a big one thing that comes to mind for us here in the UK is there's there's there's, there's a big trend towards a lot of indoor training with Zwift. Mm. And even a lot of athletes are, you know, spending a lot of time on Zwift, even though the opportunity is there to go outside, the weather's okay. So there's sort of even maybe a, a, re- a reduced amount of time being spent, let's say out on the bike for, for several hours um, during the day than, than there might have been in the past. But I would say in, in, you know, in that population, comparative to some other sports, maybe indoor type athletes, they've got a better chance of, of getting good sunlight exposure during the summer months, which is, which is a great thing. It's just about managing the risk, isn't it? Again, because you know, if you're going to go out on the bike, you tend to put your, your sunscreen on before you, before you even leave the house. So if I go out early doors at you know, six, six o'clock, seven o'clock in the morning, and I know it's going to be a sunny day, the sunscreen's going to be on then rather than me thinking, well, I'm going to, you know, I'll wait and I'll get a little bit of sun and then I'll put my sunscreen on, you know, around you know, midday or whatever. So it's, it's practically a bit of a challenge, isn't it? So yeah, it's, it's, it's all about how much time can we actually get our sun exposed, our skin exposed to the sun mm-hmm. for 15 to 30 minutes or so. And I think we just have to kind of be mindful about that. And I think, as I said before, we, we, we join the call, you know, we are working on ways tech, tech-based solutions to help athletes with that so to provide almost some sort of coaching cues about how much sunlight exposure you've had some prompts maybe to to seek safe sun, sunlight exposure if the app's detecting that you've not really had had enough over a, a period of time so hopefully in the next in the next year or two we can have a, a better solution for that, that that helps athletes understand the behaviors and and maybe make take action on it yeah the one that really stands out for me too, certainly here in Australia, where you know summers can be really hot, is that you know a lot of people are starting out, as you said, very early in the morning. You know, sometimes even before the sun's up at all, mm-hmm. and even you know if they finish their training before say nine a.m. or something, there's not going to be a lot of UV that they're exposed to, even if it is warm enough to have their you know no arm warmers or leg warmers or anything like that on when they're riding for example they're still not going to get a huge amount of uv exposure simply because they're training so early in the morning yeah it's totally you know the time of day makes a difference and it comes back to what we said before that it depends on where the sun is in the sky so if it's super mm. early in the morning even if the sun's out there's not a lot of that uv actually getting to the the our, our skin yet it's really sort of between 10 and 3 which I appreciate are also, you know, going to be the, from a, from a public health perspective, this is going to be when you're told avoid the sun sort of. So it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fine line message as a step pointed out before, but you're right. Yeah. If you're back even before 10 AM or something, it, it doesn't even really matter if it's the summer, you probably haven't mm. seen enough, enough exposure to, to give you the, the amount that you need. Mm. So if you're a lot of recreational athletes that mm. train before work and then go yeah. work in an office all day, they might, might actually not be getting that much over summer. Totally, uh, totally, uh, and and that's 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 you know that's one of the the big problems for the recreational athlete, and that's like me, 
you know, I'm training before work, early doors, whether that's a swim uh, or whether that's a long, long ride. And then I might be in the lab or in my office for a lot of the day. So, hmm. you know, I do have to be mindful of, you know, okay, can I go and have my lunch outdoors and, and sit outside for 15, 30 minutes to get, to get a bit of sunlight exposure and also to help me feel normal after I've been sat in a, a dark room for several hours as well. But <laughs> you're totally right. Yeah. For the recreational athlete out there, that's, that's a key consideration. Yeah. And so starting off, I guess, first of all, with the health aspects, what are the potential health concerns with vitamin D deficiency? If it's prolonged enough, then the, the, the key concern is you'll start to see poor markers of poor bone health. So we're going to have poor bone mineral density. Uh, it might also manifest as poor immune function, increasing your risk of illness and infection. And it might influence aspects of muscle metabolism and function as well, which are sort of emerging areas that we're appreciating how important vitamin D might be um, important for. And that might not be, I suppose, perceptible, uh, let's say, with a performance test, but it might manifest as, let's say, poor responsiveness to training or something like that as well. But really, from a pure, you know, key health perspective, the, the, the main things that are going to manifest is uh, relate to bone health and probably our immune function as well, increasing our risk to, uh, of illness and infection. Mm-hmm. Yep. And for runners, cyclists and triathletes specifically, there's obviously a focus on performance also here. So we mentioned earlier your PhD was around the impact of vitamin D on muscle, which will be important here. So what are the potential performance issues that can occur with vitamin D deficiency? Yeah, you know, I think if they're being direct and indirect effects on performance. So when I say direct effects, I would say that might be related to reduced uh, muscle performance. I'll just use that broad term, muscle performance, and perhaps poorer recovery. So over time, you know, a, a lack of responsiveness to training. The indirect effects might manifest as a loss of training days, and that could be due to an elevated risk of infection and illness. And that has actually been studied directly on athletes as well. So some data from Mike Gleason uh, quite a while ago from from Loughborough University, they looked at the days um, that athletes have lost to training due to having URTI symptoms. um, And then they correlated that with their vitamin D status. And what they saw was that, as, as you might expect, with lower vitamin D levels, there was an increased incidence of of URTIs and days with symptoms. And if you accrue that over the course of the year, of course, what we're trying to do with athletes is minimize the days lost to training. Ultimately, that's going to have a big effect on performance, you know, the amount of training that we can absorb and the amount of training volume that we can do, particularly in the type of sports like endurance sports, like triathlon and running. So uh, yeah, I, I, I try and categorize them as those direct and indirect effects, but I certainly believe that, you know, if you're, if you're deficient for long enough, you, you really will see some uh, detrimental effects on your performance. Yeah. And so we've discussed previously in episode 8A with Associate Professor Pete Peeling about iron, that sometimes deficiency can occur not because of a lack of intake, or in this case, sun exposure, but for other reasons like poor iron absorption from the gut. 
In the case of vitamin D, we also discussed a few episodes ago now with Dr. Sophie Killer that magnesium is required to convert vitamin D to the active form. And so a magnesium deficiency can potentially result in a deficiency in the active form of vitamin D also. Are there any other factors that are important in maintaining an adequate active vitamin D level? Yeah, so perhaps not directly with the active form, but I suppose there are things that can affect the efficacy of, of, that, of that vitamin D. So vitamin K is a good example of that, particularly vitamin K2. So that's going to be required to allow... Um, I suppose the best way to describe it is is sort of the the proper function of the proteins responsible for bone formation. So you could think of the the machinery that's required for for, for bone to be formed. And this happens all the time. Bone's constantly being broken down and made. So it's really important that that functions correctly. Um, And what we know is that, you know, if if, if you don't have enough vitamin K2, these proteins can't work very well. So you've got vitamin D, which is helping bring the calcium in, allowing you to have what you need to to build that bone. But you suppose you don't have the the workers working as they should to lay down that bone properly. And, you know, if if you think about where vitamin K2 is mostly coming from, fermented foods and some animal products, they're going to be then risk factors for an athlete. A lot of the athletes I've worked with actually have quite a low fermented food intake and we're seeing a a big trend of athletes who you know don't eat as much animal products anymore so the risk of actually having low k2 intake could could be quite high so that's one one area and the other is obviously calcium it's all good having enough vitamin d coming in through the diet or through exposure to sunlight but if you don't have enough calcium coming in through the diet then there really isn't that substrate to then you know, normalize your, your your body calcium levels. So I'm aware that there is a lot of work going on, particularly in Australia and I know in the US as well, trying to characterize whether athletes actually have have an elevated loss of calcium due to a number of mechanisms. And so I do think going forward, we're going to see a little bit more about how do we optimize the calcium levels of athletes. So obviously through the diet, but understanding that if you do certain types of sports or you have a lot of loss through sweat, for example, um, is there an additional sort of a, a thing that we need to pay attention to? But at least getting calcium through the diet is relatively straightforward. You know, we, we need around about a, a thousand milligrams a day and we can get that pretty easily from a lot of food. So I don't think that's such a, a big concern as long as we, we've got a varied diet. So for me, for me, they'd be the key things. Really, it's more about the the, the efficacy of how that active that vitamin D is actually having its effects can um, can definitely be related to the intake of other nutrients like K two and, and calcium. Yeah, and I guess now on the other hand, being a fat soluble vitamin, vitamin D can be stored, and so there's at least a theoretical risk of toxicity. But it sounds like from what you said earlier that vitamin D toxicity can only really occur from excessive or inappropriate supplement use. Yeah, that's that seems to be where the case studies in the in the scientific literature point to that um, the, the cases where we've seen toxicity are almost always from 
when someone has accidentally taken a, a very high dose of vitamin D and usually over over a few days or, or more of a prolonged period. There probably is a bit of more nuance to this than I, th- than I think has been investigated. I think there probably is a level where we're starting to see, okay, well, this is not having exactly the right effects that we that we think. And I think that could be studied in a bit more detail, to be honest. But in terms of you know, frank toxicity, yeah, it, it, it's really mostly from excessively high intake. And unfortunately, I suppose the the symptoms associated with that are, are kind of the sort of very generic symptoms you might see with a number of different either diseases or or, or or disease processes like nausea, poor appetite, constipation. Some people might have vomiting, can lead to sort of muscle weakness. Th- th- these are all things that I suppose are, are quite common across a lot of different diseases. So you might not know that it's actually coming from the vitamin D. So, you know, a, a physician would be able to determine that through a blood test and, and understanding where, where that might be coming from. But what one of the key risks really is that excessive intake for long enough can cause hypercalcemia. And that is where we have an elevated level of calcium in the blood. And, you know, to, to keep things very simple for the listeners, calcium is one of the most tightly controlled, let's say, uh, molecules in the body. It has to be maintained in very strict limits. And so if this starts to get elevated, it can cause a lot of issues for other tissues and organ systems so they're the risks associated with it with a high intake but as i say it, it's mostly going to come from from very high vitamin d supplemental intake and usually over a relatively prolonged period mm-hmm. yeah okay now you mentioned blood tests there which is a really good segue because that's the next thing we wanted to talk about was sort of i guess vitamin d testing and you mentioned before that when you do a blood test for vitamin D, you're generally testing for the 25 vitamin D. But I guess if we think about, you know, people will go out and get a test and they get a number back. And this may be slightly different from country to country. Sometimes you see different reference ranges, but what's generally considered for the general population where someone would be thought to be vitamin D deficient? Yeah, you, you, you're, you've hit the nail on the head in the sense that there are <laughs> different categories depending on where you are the one that seems to be most widely referred to is it comes from the u.s academy of medicine and and that's the one that you hear often cited in in in, in scientific literature and often that i see on feedback reports if, if we've ever sent to a sort of external lab that would suggest that anything under 50 nanomoles per liter is being inadequate anything under 30 being deficient, and then anything under 12 and a half being severely deficient. To my mind, this is all a little bit outdated. These guidelines have been around for a long time, and the amount of research that has emerged in between uh, those guidelines being being developed and today is, is enormous. And we know there is a lot more, there's a lot more evidence to suggest that perhaps it, uh, and it, a range of around about 75 nanomole per litre for most people tends to result in um, the, the, the prevention of any of the things that we see, uh, you know, poor immune health, maybe changes in, in, in calcium levels and so on. So I tend to look for a level of around 75 nanomole per litre with the athletes that, that I work with and, and in my recommendations. And the key thing is that we know, we know that's also a safe level. It's absolutely 
nowhere near the range that we would suggest as being a toxicity or something like that. So it's a very safe level. Yeah. Okay. And again, coming back to using iron as an example, because we've talked about that before on the podcast, there's been a lot of discussion in the sort of the iron research around, you know, perhaps a, a threshold where you might recommend supplementation might be different in athletes compared to the general population, because maybe some of those effects as iron becomes a little bit low in the iron stores start to manifest in, in subtle effects, maybe on performance that the general population wouldn't necessarily know or care about, but in an athlete, it might be enough to start to impact on their performance in a way that's you know detrimental. Mm-hmm. Is there any similarities here with vitamin D where you might decide to supplement maybe a bit more aggressively or a little bit earlier in an athlete than you would in a non-athlete? And if so, like, is there a particular rationale for that? Um, I, I, I probably wouldn't differentiate too much between athlete and non-athlete because, again, I think the, the the manifestations of lower vitamin D levels probably quite common between all people. I think we're obviously a lot more vigilant with athletes because, you know, it, when we're working one-to-one, it's our, it's our job to maintain, you know, let's say optimal health and try and optimize everything. So we're being super, super critical about everything. I would still sort of look for that 75 nanomol per litre mark across the year. And, and one of the reasons for that is that where that 75 mark has come from is actually from some of the the evidence around regulating the immune system. And for me, that is one of the fundamental things we should be trying to protect in the athlete, as I say, to minimise infection, illness and injury, particularly with high training volumes, particularly in athletes who are travelling. So... That's why I'm kind of always looking at that that that, that sort of mark around 75 nanomole per litre. So yeah, I suppose in that regard, you know, if you if you're really looking to optimise everything, that was that would be where I would shoot for. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and I think I'm probably jumping the gun with the questions here, but I think you know we were going to talk a little bit later about I guess the time of the year that you test vitamin D and the optimal yeah. time. Coming back to the discussion we had last year online. But I guess if if you're trying to stay above the 75, you know, unless you're going to deliberately take supplements all through the winter, presumably you want to be finishing summer quite a bit above that, knowing that it's going to fall a bit during the winter time. Yeah, so you know that 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 I suppose comes back to what, what we discussed about when is the most useful time to do that test, and if you want to really figure it out and be proactive and preventive, it makes more sense to do it at the back end of the summer maybe autumn or at the very least the sort of beginning of that winter where you can see what has happened beforehand if you were to test midwinter you get a snapshot of your vitamin d level it might be low you've got no idea how long it's been low for as well so you really don't know where you stand and then it's a bit of a panic to say okay i I need to try and elevate this now i don't know how long i've been in this situation but, you, but you're right, yeah, if you know, if you come out of the summer months and you've had adequate sunlight exposure, um, you've had good vitamin D intake in your diet, you know, it's quite common to see levels above 75 nanomole per litre. You know, that, that's not hard to achieve. People who spend plenty of time outdoors regularly have levels above 100. So, you, you, you know, if you're coming off the back of uh, spending some time out in the sun or a summer training camp, you've had enough sunlight exposure, you're going to have enough vitamin D. And then it's just a case of saying, okay, what's my plan then to try and maintain this through the winter? 
And really then you only, you only kind of need moderate intake throughout those, those, throughout those winter months of maybe a thousand international units per day, which is a little bit higher than what the sort of recommended daily intakes are, but I, I believe they're a little bit low and there's enough sort of large cohort studies to suggest that that one to 2000 international unit range is, is, is appropriate for maintaining vitamin D levels through the winter. Yeah. And that's a pretty common supplement dose, isn't it? A lot of products are in that range. Yeah. 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 Okay. How long does it take? So say someone is vitamin D deficient and obviously it'll depend on how deficient they are, but how quickly do you see people's vitamin D status recover once they start supplementing? It, it can be in a matter of, I mean, the first thing I'll say is that the, the, the closest we've actually supplemented is a couple of weeks, sort of two to four weeks, uh, tested, sorry, is, a, is sort of two to four mm. weeks. So we only ever have those windows of seeing the snapshots between sort of two, two and four weeks at, at best. But you tend to see it recover within two to four weeks. Like it, yeah, it happens okay. pretty quick. And it might be happening even, it might be happening even quicker than that. You know, we just don't have the, the data to, to, to show and to refer to. But what we do know is I, I plotted all of the data that we've collected across athletes and across experimental subjects. And I plotted their baseline vitamin D level. So what they come to us at the beginning with, and then the change in vitamin D levels following supplementation. And what we see is that with very low levels, the response is much greater. So you see a much greater change for the same amount of vitamin D being taken in. For those who have high levels, the response is a lot less. So that's obviously, you know, a biological mechanism that the body is saying, yes, I need more. So I'm going to use that and, you know, that's going to manifest in, in the blood. So it's easy to correct. It happens pretty quickly. And the lower you are, I think the, 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 the more quickly it will respond and, um, and, and change. Mm. And what about if someone, say, got to the end of winter and they're low, so they're going, oh, maybe I should supplement because I'm low, but at the same time, I'm, I'm coming into the warmer month, so I'm going to get more sunlight anyway. So you would expect that it would start to rebound. I'm assuming that that rebound would be a bit slower if it's through greater sunlight and i guess as you're going from winter to summer there's a transition it's not like it's suddenly summer the next day or anything mm. like that so i guess that's going to be a slower recovery than if you were taking supplements yeah i, I would have thought so i mean I, I don't have um direct evidence to refer to but that that theory makes complete sense and i would probably still look in those spring months to to try and supplement with a modest dose until we get to mm. Yeah, the, the the full summer months and yeah. then just withdraw it at that point and and suggest safe sun exposure it's unlikely even with i would say with with safe sun exposure and even if you were taking a low a lowish dose around a thousand international units it's unlikely that that's going to cause toxicity effects mm. but particularly early on you know spring and very early summer i, I don't think that's going to be too much of a problem but certainly when you get to the summer, I would then withdraw it and then just try and maintain it through safe sunlight exposure. Yeah. Okay. That was going to be my next question. Now, now some of the work that yourself and the, the team at Liverpool John Moores has focused on is differences in vitamin D levels with ethnicity mm-hmm. and also this concept of free or bioavailable vitamin D as a, another potential measure. Mm-hmm. So let's start with the ethnicity part. What did you see when you started to look at those differences? 
Yeah, so th- th- this was really interesting at the time, and it, it it was it was some of the first work to be done in athletic cohorts. But it was our collaborator Richard Allison, who was based out in Qatar at the time, and the group of athletes he was working with, ethnically diverse cohorts, so from a, a lot of different backgrounds. And he basically tried to look at the association between the vitamin D levels and and, and their bone health, and and basically didn't really see any correlation between. The, the, the two. Now, as I say, that had kind of already, it was novel in the sense that we were seeing it in athletes, but I suppose the, the paradox wasn't a novel one in a way. It had been reported before in the literature, which was that in black individuals, they often have low 25 OHD, but they don't seem to show the signs of vitamin D deficiency. So changes in their, their calcium levels or poor bone health. And in fact, what, what we tend to see is that in black individuals, they, they have better calcium retention. So compared with white counterparts, and even with low vitamin D levels, we're seeing that they seem to retain that calcium a bit better. I, I'm still trying to really figure this out. I really want to work a lot more on this. I've tried to get funding to do work on this because I do believe it's more of a fundamental difference in vitamin D metabolism in some ethnic groups rather than just being a skin thing that we're different colors i i don't i don't think that is the main mechanism here i think it's something Mm -hmm. deeper than that so unfortunately i don't have the all the answers right now but yeah clearly there are some differences that we need to we need to investigate and you know a, a key problem with science is that certain ethnicities are underrepresented and i think this is a great example where we, we, we need to be more representative with the work that we're doing rather than yeah. getting, you know, your, your sort of your white university student in a well-developed country doing these research trials. It's, it's not entirely representative at all. Yeah. So one of the things that came out of, of that same work, I think, was this concept of free or, or bioavailable vitamin D. And I think that the concept that, that uh, the black athletes in the study had a lower vitamin D per se when you tested it, but actually the free or bioavailable vitamin D was the same as the white athletes, even though their their twenty five vitamin D was was lower, and that might be part of the reason, as you said, that they're not showing the the signs of vitamin D deficiency despite a lower quote unquote level. So this concept of uh, free or bioavailable vitamin D is this another term for that one twenty five D three or is this something different again? Yeah, so you, you know you've done a great job of sort of summarising everything that we kind of initially looked at in that area. And to answer the the, the question, the final question there, the there is a difference. So it, they are two different things. Um, mm-hmm. When we're talking about the bioavailable form, we're looking at the fraction of twenty five OHD that isn't bound to what is called a vitamin D binding protein. It's a, it's a protein that's going to shuttle vitamin D around the body. And a, and a fair fraction of it is actually bound to this. Some of it isn't. And so there's a hypothesis, as with some other hormones, that it's the unbound form that actually is more important. Now, when some of these studies then try to look at the vitamin D binding protein and then estimate how much bioavailable fraction there was uh, available that they, they, they found that as you correctly pointed out that fraction wasn't different between the races that were studied despite the fact that their overall levels were different 
But what we found later down the line was that what most of the labs that had been testing this had done was using a particular lab assay that wasn't accurately accurately measuring the, the binding protein. And so it was only detecting a certain part of it and not capturing everything. And as a result, all of then the equations that were used to actually say, oh, you know, this, so this is how much bioavailable you've got, were actually thought then to not be valid. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's, it's come full circle. It's come back to square one, which is why I'm still recommending now, you know, based on 25 OHD. Um, I still think it's far, far from perfect because, you know, if we go back to our last question on, on looking at the differences between ethnicities, that there still clearly are things that we don't know. There may be some legs in the idea of testing multiple vitamin D metabolites and, 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 and working out what is like a metabolic ratio, but I don't want to complicate things here. And I also think we're, we're really not there yet in terms of knowing enough to say that that is actually useful. But, you know, I think overall, you know, one thing to highlight to listeners and, and perhaps if you, you know, if you're not involved in science or not trained in it, it's a great case to understand where scientists were able to say, you know, yes, new evidence has come out. Uh, it turns out we weren't right on that. So let's keep working on the problem. And, you know, I think that's really important to maintain scientific integrity, particularly when there's so much like bro science going around where it's yep. very binary. It's this or it's this, you know, science. Often we go through these phases where we've we found something. We think it's this. That's the best knowledge we have right now. But in three or four years, we figured out actually that wasn't quite right. Here's the here's the latest science. So that's why I think these platforms are great for us to get out what is currently the, the, the best knowledge that we have. Yeah. Yeah, t- totally agree. And I think, you know, sometimes you see that as, you know, people like, oh, they're backtracking and it's a big scandal or something like that. You know, the media love to make a big scandal out of something. But in fact, that's, as you said, it's just scientific process. It's like, well, we thought it was this and turned out it wasn't and that's okay, we move on. It's not, you know, there was a conspiracy or some cover-up or, you know, some gotcha moment there or something like that yeah. as, as we often play out in, in politics and things. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I guess that that comes back to, you know, maybe a few years ago people were like, oh, maybe we should be testing for, you know, bioavailable or free vitamin D. You know, that might be a better test, but it sounds like now actually because it wasn't really readily available as far as I could tell, we probably don't need to necessarily stress about that. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, you know, we, we'd written a paper as well where we'd suggested that, you know, particularly if you've got an ethnic, ethnically diverse cohort, perhaps you could, in conjunction with looking at 25-OHD, look at the bioavailable fraction. But, yeah, you know, as I said there, we've, we've, we've since learned that actually it's probably not going to offer that much. There's still a long way to go. And for the time being let's keep measuring 25 OHD. Uh, it seems like by doing that, we can at least still confidently reduce the risk of, uh, you, you know, the, the manifestations of deficiency uh, in most of the athletes that we have. So it, it seems like the best approach that we can take at the moment. So I guess, yeah, let's get to the heart of the episode, which is actually vitamin D supplementation. Obviously, vitamin D supplements are pretty easily available over the counter in most countries, but should athletes just go for it straight away and start supplementing kind of all year round? Or is it like it sounds like we've been suggesting that it's maybe just needed in winter 
is there any harm if an athlete does just supplement all year round? Yeah, so, I mean, whilst I would encourage, like, getting a test at some point to to try and figure out where you are, you know, I know that it's not always practically um, feasible for for the athlete. So some individuals will just do that, you know, kind of they get the routine, they're in the routine of taking a daily supplement. And and so it's easier just to do that the whole year round. I I still think whilst I've, you know, I don't want to say there's absolutely no harm in doing it, but with a low dose of supplementation, I I would say that the risk of harm is, is going to be quite low because it is just such a low amount of vitamin D. My optimal advice, though, would be to follow that approach of supplementing through the winter months, safe sun exposure in the summer months. If you are someone who, in the, even in the summer months, you think, well, I actually am going to be in an office most of the day. I'm not really going to get much chance to get my arms and legs out in the sun. I don't think there's any harm in, in maintaining your supplemental strategy through through the summer months as well. But where possible, you know, for the many other benefits of just getting yourself in the sunlight as well, I, you know, I would I would try as best as you can to try and schedule 15 to 30 minutes to actually just get a little bit of sun exposure and maintain your vitamin D levels that way during the summer rather than supplementation. As I mentioned before, we are working on approaches that don't require testing to try and help people to understand how to maintain their vitamin D levels based on how much exposure they've been getting and the clothes they're wearing and the, the, the sunscreen they're using. But we're not there yet. So hopefully hopefully we can develop that in the next year or two and give people a much easier way to manage their vitamin D. Yep. Yep. And so it doesn't sound like it's absolutely essential to test before supplementing like we would recommend with iron even if it would maybe be ideal, but it's not always available or affordable. Yeah, you know, it's not essential. And I really do understand the practical implications of it as well. You know, there's a cost implication. There is uh, a point of when would I actually do it? What's the most you know appropriate time for me to do it? There's also the point of how do I know which test is going to be the right one and it's going to accurately give me my, my 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 true vitamin d score back so no you know i don't think it's always essential particularly for recreational athletes i you know i do i do prefer and my recommendations towards professional athletes is is to encourage supplementation whether that's through themselves or through their organization but even some of the work that i've been doing recently is showing that even that can be a challenge for a number of reasons as well you know, I, I will point out, though, that one thing we haven't touched on and, and is often overlooked is that, that there are a lot of athletes that do actually use sunbeds as well. So like the artificial UV beds. And when I've had athletes who we've tested who use them, they are they always have high vitamin D levels. And so, you know, if an athlete is doing that, you know, whether they're doing it year round or whatever time of the year that they're doing it, you you don't need to supplement around that. Now I don't I don't recommend the use of that because of the skin cancer sort of um, connotations and, and and the fact that it can, it, it can and probably does elevate skin cancer risk. But if the athlete chooses to do that, we have to be mindful and, and not be giving them. A, you know we don't need to be again giving them supplementation on top of that because it is a very concentrated amount of UV and it's obviously quite you know most of the body being exposed 
that's the purpose that they're going on it for. Um, so yeah, I just thought I'd put that in there because it, it, the, the, the reasons that we might choose to supplement and when we do it are not purely just based on how sunny is it outside and what time of the year it is. There, there are those other subtleties as well, like sunbed use. So one common area of confusion is the way vitamin D supplement doses are labelled. Usually you've got micrograms and international units written on the label. So firstly, why have both, just to confuse us? And secondly, what is the recommended dose in these units for supplementing? And do you have a preferred unit to use when talking about it and why? Yeah, so um, you're totally right. It, it, it is obviously very confusing for people. The reason this, this exists is that for things like vitamins and hormones, for example, sometimes their, their effectiveness or what they do can't simply be determined by a, a volume or a, a mass unit like milliliters or, or milligrams, for example. So the development of international units came in to basically standardize a little bit of precision and consistency b- between different forms of the same thing to give us a better insight into the biological activity and also for like safety and regulation as well. It, it can it can help to regulate the actual dosage, particularly for things that have got like a very narrow window, narrow therapeutic window. Um, so that's why it was developed, but I, I really understand that it's not that helpful for the consumer, the person who's going to pick up the, the the supplementation bottle, and you know, one says micrograms, and the other one's got international units on it. So, um, I always recommend in international units. It's it's more widely used, and with the, the area that I obviously work in, being in, in in the scientific realm, we always refer to international units in our publications and work as well. So. I think it's better to, to to do it in that way. Plus, the guidelines th- th- from most organisations, like the US Academy of of Medicine and so on, that they, they recommend in international units as well. For the listeners, they can uh, do the maths. But one microgram is forty international units. So if you see that, you can just multiply by forty if it's in micrograms. Let's say. So in terms of effective doses, we generally now recommend one to 2,000 international units. That's come from, I suppose, a number of different lines of evidence, but the, the, the main ones being some large cohort studies which have looked at what is the average requirement for most people to maintain their vitamin D levels within, let's say, like a, above 50 nanomoles per litre throughout the winter. So I think it's a safe and a reasonable dose. And for the majority of people, that's quite easy easy to attain as well. There's, there's, and there's going to be very little risk of, of toxicity with this as well. Very, very little risk. We have tested much higher doses, particularly in our research studies. But some of the, the research that came or the results that we had back indicated that there was probably some increased risk of breaking down the actual active forms of the vitamin D rather than them being elevated to where we want them to to, them to be. So in other words, it was probably the body saying, that's a little bit too much. I don't need that. Even though we weren't seeing sort of markers of toxicity, perhaps these could be considered as sort of early markers that, nah, it's a bit too much. I, I don't, we, we, we don't need that that much in the body. 
So the sort of one to two thousand, you know, international units mark is is, is about right. And yeah, you can just divide that by forty to get it in in micrograms. So that'd be the range that that, that I would aim for. And some supplements, at least here in Australia, provide vitamin D and calcium together. Mm-hmm. Is that necessary for someone with low vitamin D but no known? bone density issues? I would say only if the the dietary calcium intake is low. So I've often had conversations with with physicians or like club doctors who really, you know, try and argue the point in a healthy way that, you know, we should be given calcium with it as well. But I don't think there's enough or or good enough evidence to suggest that if dietary calcium intake is, is good, because what we're trying to do with vitamin D supplementation is not take people into like a super physiological range. We're just trying to get them back into a normal range. So if their calcium's in a normal range, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me why we would then start to add even more calcium on top of it. That's my rationale for it. So I ideally try and meet the calcium demands for the athlete through the diet. It's not difficult to achieve, you know, dairy leafy greens you know fortified foods we're gonna we're gonna meet calcium intake with the caveat of what i mentioned before that there might be some emerging evidence that in some sports calcium loss might be a bit higher so until we get you know a really good update on that i would just say vitamin d alone and let's try and meet our calcium and our vitamin k2 as we mentioned earlier in the podcast through through a varied diet which has got obviously several other benefits as well than just you know those individual nutrients yep and so if we do need a supplement with vitamin d do we need to be mindful of vitamin d interfering with the absorption of other nutrients so say like calcium can interfere with the absorption of iron not not necessarily not that i'm aware of i mean the Possibly with like insuff- insufficient fat intake, that might actually influence the uptake of the vitamin D, given it that it's fat soluble. But you know, the only one that really springs to mind is the, is is the is the absorption of calcium because that's its role is to is to help us get that calcium from the food that we eat and, and into our blood into our bloodstream. But in terms of other interactions, the only one other ones I can really think of are that some medications will interfere with um, metabolism of vitamin D. So certain um, things like glucocorticoids or certain weight loss drugs. And one that I actually wasn't aware of that that Liz brought brought to my attention was anticonvulsants, where we were talking about parasports athletes and some of them have to take those. And that was actually really new to me as well. I, I wasn't aware that anticonvulsants could do that. So if anyone's listening who 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 does have to take them, that can interfere with metabolism of vitamin D as well. Yep, yep. And any side effects when, you know, athletes may supplement with vitamin D in terms of gastrointestinal issues or anything? Not usually. I, the, you know, I haven't seen many reports of that and I haven't had athletes report that to me either. The only time where you might see that is if excessive amounts are taken regularly. So if I go back to the, the, to the question about toxicity, for example, if you're taking really high amounts by mistake, that's when it might manifest with some gastrointestinal issues. But 
Otherwise, I, d- I don't believe there's any reason why anyone would have GI problems with it. Yeah. All right, well, we're going to finish off now, Dan, with our bonus round where we find out a little bit more about you besides sunlight and vitamin D and triathlon. So our first question, if you didn't work in sport and exercise science, what do you think you'd be doing instead? Yeah, I think I'd still have a role in science somehow, maybe a different discipline of science, because I am fascinated by trying to answer questions that we don't have answers to yet. You know, that that's really what why, why I'm an academic as, as, as well as working as a sort of practitioner. But I have become interested in why and how people make decisions. So maybe like a behavioral discipline would be really good. I think that would be really interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Something on your bucket list that you haven't done yet? One of the key ones is, the main ones for me is I haven't been over to Australia yet and I've traveled quite a lot. Ah. So yeah, if there's if there's any invites going for anyone listening, then yeah, get in touch. <laughs> I'd love to get out there and then do a bit of Australia. But yeah, it's definitely on the horizon. Like I want, I want to get out there soon. Yeah, yeah, cool. I was going to say Sports Dietitians Conference is coming up yeah. in October on the Sunshine Coast, which is a beautiful part of nice. the world. But yeah, I think the program for that one's already already done unfortunately yeah i have to go to the next one or next time the ashes are out here but i don't think it's for another three years or something now yeah we won't talk ashes it's still a sore (laughs) point i think (laughs) is there a sport that you've always wanted to try but you haven't had the chance i'd like to like snow sports in general but snowboarding i've actually booked in some lessons to do that it's something i really want to do because i want to get on some like ski holidays so yeah I'd, i'd really like to do snowboarding yep yep awesome is there a sporting event that you're most looking forward to in 2023? Maybe it's already been or maybe it's still to come. Yeah, there's, I was going to say, there's not there's not that many left. But, you know, given that I'm really interested in triathlon, we still have a couple of world champs left. Obviously, mm. we've got 70.3 worlds and the full distance as well. So I, I really enjoy those, day, those days watching, you know, the, the absolute best all in one place, having a, having a really good go at it. And I think with the men's race for the Ironman World Champs being in Nice, that's going to be really interesting. A different yeah. course, very challenging, sort of descending and stuff, which is not common for like usually when it's in Kona. So I think that's going mm. to be pretty cool. And then, although it's not this year, I'm looking forward. Obviously, we've got the Olympics not too far away, Paris. So like very much looking forward to that as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny talking about Nice. I had someone in the lab earlier this week, actually, for a study who's who's going to Nice. He's an age grouper. And I asked him, oh, look, you're happy about it being in Nice instead of Kona? And he's 55 kilos. So he's like, yeah, of course I am. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's a hilly course. <laughs> Finally don't have these pancake flat courses where you're just oh, yeah. power athletes. So he's he's stoked about it. But I know, a lot of the a lot of the community, not so much. So, yeah. No. All right. And final question. Do you live by any particular advice or motto? You know what? Not not one not one sort of motto or anything in particular. But I was thinking about this, and I I have you know I have a little journal which I use every day. It's for planning, but also sort of you know just general sort of reflection and stuff. And there's a little quote that comes on every single page from famous people. And one that I'd saw recently, and I'd actually highlighted it for myself anyway, was it's not related to work, sport, or anything. But that happiness is not something made; it comes from your own actions from the Dalai Lama and I, I you know I really like that yeah because I, I do feel that you know everything that we do and whether that's the way we feel or the impact we have on everyone else it's it's all down to ourselves we shouldn't be waiting for it to come come to us 
it's all about mm. us doing it ourselves so i really like that one yeah yeah absolutely and a bit of sunshine will help with that probably for most people (laughs) all right well thank you so much for your time dan it's been a long one but i think a really comprehensive look at at vitamin d and, and as we said at the start you know really good timing i think with those in the northern hemisphere coming off the end of summer and having to think about you know maybe should i think about supplementation and and maybe people down here in the southern hemisphere thinking oh it's the end of winter you know i haven't been supplementing maybe i should think about it or get tested or, or things like that as well so thank you so much for your time it's been been great to chat to you and i think this will be really useful for for our listeners thanks very much That was great. Thank you very much, Dan. And now I'll let Alan summarise and let us know whether we should be, when we should be testing for vitamin D and if we should be supplementing with vitamin D. Yeah, well, I don't think I need to summarise too much today, actually, because Dan was super clear with his explanations. Really enjoyed that chat with him. But I guess if we are to summarise it briefly, Vitamin D is more like a hormone than a vitamin, as we discussed, but it is similar to a nutrient in that we need to get it from externally to the body, in this case from UV conversion in the skin, but also we can get some vitamin D from food, and the reason it was called a vitamin in the first place was it was first discovered in food before we realised that the UV conversion. Now, vitamin D's primary function is to regulate calcium absorption from the gut and the formation of bone mineral using calcium in the body. But it does have other roles as well, some of which we probably don't fully understand. But we do know that there's a role of vitamin D in terms of the immune system, which is relevant to athletes, and as well as muscle function, which is obviously Dan's main area of research. Now, there are different forms of vitamin D that does get quite confusing, as we talked about. What we produce from the sun and what we get from animal foods is vitamin D3 whereas the vitamin D we get from mushrooms is vitamin D2. Now, vitamin D3 is better at being converted into the active forms of vitamin D, and so when you buy vitamin D supplements, you can actually buy both D2 and D3 supplements. But as Dan said, the recommendation is to use vitamin D3 supplements if you're going to buy supplements. Now, vitamin D is further transformed before finally reaching the active form, and it's the second last one of these along that process, which is called 25-hydroxyvitamin D or 25-OHD, that is the preferred one to be tested when you do a blood test because it best reflects the body's general adequacy of vitamin D or whether you're deficient or not. Now, usually the recommendations are for a 25-OHD level in the blood of greater than 50 nanomoles per litre. But as Dan said, his recommendation is based on more recent research, which is around the 75 nanomoles per litre to be sort of adequate for, for optimal function. And again, remembering with athletes, we're not just trying to prevent a deficiency and disease. We're actually trying to optimise function for performance as well as health. Now, adequate sun exposure to meet vitamin D needs will vary, obviously, over the seasons, depending on the angle of the sun in the sky. Dan explained that really nicely. The extremes of this are greater the further away you get from the equator. So down here in Melbourne or even further down in Tasmania or in places like the UK, maybe Canada, Scandinavia, those sorts of parts of the world, you're going to get more extremes in terms of the amount of UV radiation and the effect that that has on your vitamin D status. So you do have to be more careful in winter and obviously cover up in summer. Now in Australia, our official recommendations state that we only need a few minutes 
of arm and leg exposure without sunscreen sometime in the mid-morning or mid-afternoon, which is a UV index of three or above, which is actually not that high in summer. You know, summer here in Melbourne, our UV index gets well over 10, I think up to about 12 or something like that at times. But in the winter, the recommended sun exposure increases to about two to three hours a week because the UV index barely reaches above three even in the middle of the day. And so right now at the end of August, I had a look today, the UV index here in Melbourne hits about 3.3, 3.4, something like that for about one and a half, two hours in the middle of the day, and that's it. The rest of the day, it's below three. So you wouldn't really get sufficient UV to generate that that vitamin D, which is not surprisingly then why vitamin D deficiency is so common, particularly when a lot of us are indoors covered up because it's cold, even though it might be sunny. And we're just not getting that sun exposure. Now, Dan quoted 15 to 30 minutes a day of unprotected skin exposure. Now, this may be slightly different in the northern hemisphere due to differences in the thickness of the ozone layer between the northern and southern hemispheres. So uh, I guess the recommendations may be different, say, in the UK or the US compared to what it is here in Australia. So just bear that in mind. Now, it is pretty common, as I said, to be low in vitamin D during winter. So those in the southern hemisphere will be at their lowest point of the year about now, in the end of August. And up in the northern hemisphere, you'd theoretically be at your highest point in terms of vitamin D status. Now, even for runners, cyclists, and triathletes, if a lot of your training is either indoors, either because of the weather, or that's just your preference, or it's early in the morning because of work, or in some parts of the world, it's just too hot to train in the middle of the day, then you may actually not be getting adequate sun exposure for optimal vitamin D status. You may make up for that for some people in summer, for example, if you do your weekend long run or ride, you know, sort of later in the morning because you don't have to fit it around work, but the duration may necessitate sunscreen on those runs or rides because you're going to be out there for a long time and you don't want to get burnt either. So because of that, you may actually still not get adequate UV exposure to produce that vitamin D if you either train super early or you just cover up in you know, a thick layer of sunscreen for, for that entire duration. For a large proportion of the population, whether you're an athlete or not, supplementation over the winter months will probably be required to prevent a deficiency in vitamin D, but it's often unnecessary in the summer. And as Dan mentioned, most of the time you don't need to supplement in summer, uh, apart from if you, you know, you're covered up or indoors most of your summer. Now, while testing before supplementing with vitamin D just blindly would be ideally recommended, often that's not always available, accessible, cheap, etc. So there really is fairly minimal risk of vitamin D toxicity if you only take the recommended dose of the, the supplement, unlike something like iron. And that dose that Dan recommended was about one to 2,000 international units per day of a D3 supplement. Now, finally, if you are testing and you want to be proactive with testing your vitamin D status to you know, supplement before you hit that kind of level of deficiency, then testing just before the start of winter might help to figure out if you need to supplement immediately, if you're a bit low or sort of close to that, uh, you know, dropping below that ideal range. Or you may find that actually you can probably get away with not supplementing for the first month or two of, of winter possibly. The other time that often people do get tested is the end of winter because it's likely that you're going to be at your lowest in terms of vitamin D. But, you know, often it's too late by then. I mean, obviously you can supplement and improve things, but you, 
want to be proactive in most cases and prevent you actually getting to that low status in the first place. So then testing at the start of winter or, you know, maybe a month into winter maybe makes more sense than getting tested right at the end of winter. Awesome. So next episode, Al, you mentioned this one is from a listener of ours. Yeah, yeah. So shout out to one of our listeners, Sean Dunn, who sent through this question. And he was asking, and this was based on a conversation that that we'd had online, was what nutrition advice for the general population should not be applied to endurance athletes, runners, cyclists, and triathletes? Now, we've talked about a few little things here and there throughout other episodes of the podcast, but this is, I think, a nice opportunity to bring this together and talk about the fact that, you know, general nutrition recommendations for the general population are not specifically designed for athletes. Sometimes there can be confusion or conflict between these for people, and sometimes people get confused by that. So hopefully this will sort of cut through that and try and help people understand, yep, these general nutrition messages are still relevant to me, still important, really good, or hmm, maybe I need to be a bit mindful of this because with the amount of training that I do, this I might actually run into trouble if I follow this advice to the T. Yeah, awesome. And then just finally, a reminder again, if you do have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or X. Thanks to those people who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We really appreciate it. And if you do listen on one of these platforms and have uh, 30 seconds or so to spare, then we'd love it if you could leave a quick rating or review. Those that do leave a review will go into a draw to win a copy of our ebook when it's published. And remember also that there's now 63 previous questions that we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. You might like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them going back to November 2020. If you would like to be notified every time a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on. And finally, if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition worry for their training or racing and you've heard it on the podcast, you might like to let them know uh, and you might like to, you know, share the, the podcast to your friends. Otherwise, as always, we will love and leave you and uh, see you in a couple of weeks. we Will do. See you then. 